Okay, I'm glad you're here. We're uh, just days before Rosh Hashanah, and it's uh, it's an emotional time because you know we we want to get it right, basically, and it's a it's, it's a big day. It's a big day, and we want to get it right. And you know what's what what are the stakes? You know, I'm in the I'm in the storytelling business, and um, a lot of times, like you'll turn in a script or whatever it is, and the note that frequently comes back is uh, there aren't enough stakes, meaning to say like, like why do I care? Like I want to care about these characters, but you haven't made me care about these characters. You haven't made me feel like if if the lead character doesn't get what they want, that something that something you'll never want to happen is going to happen, or you care so much about this person that you you just will be too heartbroken if they don't get what they want. Because you're invested, so so we don't really have that issue when it comes to Rosh Hashanah, <laughs> because the stakes are really enormous, and the stakes are our lives, and the stakes are the the the, the welfare of of, of the, the Jewish people and of the entire world, by the way, because you know Judaism is a very it's 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 a very all um, encompassing vision of the world. Um, and it, it incorporates all of the nations of the world as well. So, because everyone's got a share in the Torah. Everyone, Jews, non-Jews, everyone has mitzvahs in the Torah. And of course, we're all children of God. So, so the stakes are for the entire world. So, everything boils down to kind of like just doing our best to get it right. And, you know, we're we're called the people of the book and you know we've just for thousands of years have literally invested everything in just trying to understand God's will and yet somehow after thousands of years of the most intense and and really beautiful deep study there is no official answer of how to get it right <laughs> you know that's it's it's kind of like it's kind of ironic, or or heartbreaking, or mysterious. Whatever, whatever word you'd like to put to it. Um, so so all we can do is do our best, and and of course God knows that. And and I heard a story. It's I don't know. I I, I don't know how I feel about this story honestly, <laughs> but in the end, I guess I really like it because I think that. Uh, it delivers a message in a bit of a harsh way, but the, the, the message is good. So, so here's the story. I heard it in the name of Rabbi Biederman, who's one of the big rabbis today. And, and, it, and I heard it like this. So I'm, I, I'm hearing it second or third hand right now, but, but, but it's a pretty simple story. So the way it goes is that there were there, these two guys in Israel. I think it's told as a true story, but either way, two guys in Israel were walking, and they're, they're like kind of in the kind of the, in the hinterlands, basically, and they're trying to kind of just hike around, and they're getting back to civilization, whatever, whatever that means, where, wherever they are, and it's really like long, a long, long trek for them. And at a certain point, they're just absolutely exhausted, and they, they fall asleep. One person falls asleep, one of their friends falls asleep by a, a rock, another falls asleep by, by the train tracks. But it's completely deserted. And, you know, a train starts coming, and the two of them are in a very deep sleep. And the train conductor is, is blowing the whistle very, very loudly. Like, so loudly you could hear it like towns away. Like, really loudly. But it's, 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 it doesn't succeed in, in, in waking up the person who's by the train tracks. And, um, you know, the, the conductor, I guess, saw that person too late and was counting on the train whistle to wake him up. And, and the person dies. So that's the end of the story, and that's, that's the part that I don't like. <laughs> but
But here's the part that I do like and the reason why I'm telling it to you and the reason why Rabbi Biederman was telling it was because of the following. He said, how much did that train conductor want that person by the tracks to move? A mile? Two miles? To another town? He just wanted him to move a tiny bit. Right? Like just... To move a tiny bit was the difference between life and death, literally. So, so, so the rabbi went on to say, what, what, is, what does God want from us? He just wants to, to see that we're moving a little bit. And, and I think the reason why I personally resonate with that with that story and that message is you really see the stakes. The stakes are life and death. They really are. And yet the solution is so manageable, actually. The solution is, is kind of in our hands and, and, and very, very doable. See, because when we, when we, you know, we're, human beings are capable of like such exalted thoughts and everything like that, but I'll speak for myself, we're also, at the same time, very, very um, vulnerable to being overwhelmed very easily. You know, so it, it's, it's kind of funny. It's like, it's, it's like we're capable of such greatness, and yet at the same time we can be shut down, you know, very, very quickly and very, very easily. So when you, get, when you, when you begin to contemplate thoughts like, my destiny for the year, our, our, our nation's destiny for the year, the world's destiny for, for the year, our family's destiny for the year. It, it's very easy to shut down when you, when, you, when, you, when you think of thoughts like that, right? But then when you realize that when all is said and done, it's just a question of maybe just moving a little bit, then, then somehow you know, everything becomes reframed and we realize, oh, wait a second, I, I, do ha- I, I can do this. I can do this. I, whatever is necessary, I can do. I, can, I, I got this. So, so we went over some strategies already. And I'll just begin. Let's just review a couple of things and, and maybe say a couple of new things. Um, what I think is the best, best strategy is what I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Ishbitzer Rebbe, which is at this, this time of the year, everyone should concentrate on fixing what they're doing right. Right? So that, that sounds very sort of paradoxical. Well, if I'm doing it right, how, why do I need to fix it? Right? But the idea is, as Reb Shlomo said it, this thing that you're already doing, are you doing it with all of your heart? So, so begin with the things that you're already doing. And then ask yourself, because these, these things, these routines that we fall into, they, they, they become so often so, so dead, you know? Ask yourself, as you're doing them, am I doing this with all of my heart? This, this brocha that I'm saying, whatever it is, am I just zipping th- through it so that I, I myself don't even understand the words that I'm saying, right? And I'm sure I'm skipping eight of them, right? So, you know, then you just pause. Okay, let me, let me do this with all my heart. Let me do that with all my heart. And then all of a sudden, the, the fog begins to clear. And you realize that you're standing before God, right? So... There's something that, that, that I've been learning about lately, and, and this, is, this is new for us to discuss. It's, it's a very um, mysterious offering that we would bring to the, uh, to the Beis HaMikdash, to the Holy Temple. And of course, you know, we've been saying over this phenomenal... This... this <laughs> sorry inner GPS calling to us, right? So, so you know, you, you can't hear the words Beis HaMikdash, Holy Temple, at this time of the year without remembering the, the great gematria of the, 
Jacob Rebbe that Beis HaMikdash is the same numerical value as Rosh Hashanah. Okay, so that's, that's, that's like big. So one of the more complicated uh, offerings that we would bring to the Beis HaMikdash, and then think in the back of your mind, Rosh Hashanah, is the Korban Ola. Now, the Korban Ola was, was something that uh, different, different, different offerings that we would bring would be treated in different ways. So, some of them would be divided, like it would go up in smoke, but some of it would go to feed the Kahanim, okay, the, right, the priests who worked in the Holy Temple. Um, something like a Korban Shlamim, right, that would be divided among the Kahanim, and then also you would get as well. So everyone would get. Now the Korban Ola, um, which Ola means to go up, the, the Korban Ola was different from the other offerings because none of it went anywhere. It just was completely consumed on the Mizbeach, on the altar, and that was it. Okay? And you'll see the Korban Ola is, is throughout, like, Sefer Vayikra, Leviticus, and things like that. The Korban Ola is like this staple offering. So you'd say, okay, so it's another offering. What's what's the big deal? <laughs> like why? Like, like we don't have any offerings today. So why are you getting so technical? You know, this is you know. We're, I thought we were talking about Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> now, like it's two thousand years ago, and whatever. So the the Korban Ola is actually very very relevant to us um, because there's a very key insight that it offers to our heavenly service. And what's so interesting about the Korban Ola is this seeming paradox that I'm about to tell you, okay? And this is from the Gomorrah and the Rashis and everything like this, and I was learning it from in Tekanus HaShavin by Reb Tzadik HaKon. And here is the, here's the mystery behind the Korban Ola. It is not a kapara. Kapara means an atonement, like a soul cleansing. All the other sacrifices on one level or another are like soul cleansings, okay? So it is not a kapara. It is a gift that you're giving. Just you bring it as a gift, okay? So, so far, so good. So now here's the complication. On the other hand, though, Unless you bring it, this free will offering, which is a gift, unless you bring it, you don't achieve full atonement. (laughs) So we just said it's not an atonement. And now we say, unless you bring it, you don't get fully atoned for. So what's going on with the Corbinola? (laughs) All of a sudden, the Corbinola is like this very fascinating sort of like staple. And I'm going to kind of cut to the chase because, like I say, this is a giant message for us, okay? The idea is like this. You see, and all of this goes back to what's been the bottom line for all of us and, and, and which is we're in a relationship with God, right? Remember, remember, they're all different paradigms to describe our, 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 our relationship with God. There's parent and child. There's king and subject. Right? There's lovers. That's in Shir Shirim. And Rabbi Akiva says that's the holy of holies. That, that aspect of the relationship, which is this, this intimacy that you have with the divine. Right? Remember the Rambam says that a person has to walk around lovesick over God, right? So, and it's always a question. We have God as healer as well. We have God as best friend. All these paradigms, by the way, are in Tanakh. These are all referenced by, by the Torah itself. So the, the question is always like evaluating the moment you are in life, and this can change moment to moment, and accessing what the most relevant relationship is in that moment, right? Okay. 
So, so when you're in a relationship, and that is absolutely the essence of our existence, that's the essence of this world, is to be in this relationship. When you're in a relationship, now imagine being sort of like um, married to someone, okay? You're married to someone, and your job is to basically do everything that's asked of you, okay? Now imagine this is a marriage, okay? You know, I'm going to, all I'm going to do is everything that's asked of me, but I'm going to do everything that's asked of me. So, if you're like a dumb guy, you probably think, I'm in a great relationship. (laughs) But if you've got a little bit of sense, looking at it from the other person's perspective, it's sort of like, this is not a great relationship. You're just doing everything that you're told to do And it never rises above that. This is not a great relationship. Does everyone understand that? It's very easy to fall into that type of relationship with God. Especially since what's asked of us is so comprehensive. So we think that if we're doing... You see, this is where it gets a little bit complicated from the human side of the equation. We think if we're doing just what we're asked of, which is (laughs) all-encompassing, then surely that's enough. (laughs) That's got to be enough. (laughs) Because from night to day, I'm doing absolutely... All all my moments are filled with it. So so that's got to be enough. Except... It's not. (laughs) Because we're sort of the, you know, the oppressed. That that psychology, if you just look at that dynamic, our profile is the oppressed partner (laughs) who's just busy servicing the needs of the other. And this is not great. It's not great. So what do you have to do? You have to rise up to this level that we call love. See, when you get to the level of love, then you're doing stuff that you're not asked to do. Is this the feminine side of God? <laughs> this is the real side. This is, this is the real side. For better or for worse, classically speaking, it does accurately describe the male-female dynamic, right? But remember, male and female is two parts of one whole, right? So, so when we talk about, you know, Israel, say, that's, that is male and female at the same time, although relative to God, we would call that the female, right? The, the, although that doesn't really sync. You know, there's so many paradigms. You have to pick the right example for the right moment. That doesn't really sync with what we're talking about right now. But it is, it can sort of classically best be understood in a, in a, in a male, in a, in a, in a husband-wife kind of way. But the, the bottom line is, is that in order for us to really rise to the level that we need to rise to, in order to be sort of like the dynamic partner that we're supposed to be, the fulfilling our potential in terms of what, what it means to have a godly soul within us, we have to rise from a doer to a giver. Right? So, and, and, and you will only get to that place where you want to do more, where you're excited to do more, if you reach this level of love. Right? That's, that's why it's so important. You know, what, what the Hasidic revolution sort of brought about so successfully, really, was showing that our emotions are an essential piece of the puzzle. That we can't just sort of like be servicing the commandments with our mind. 
that unless we're incorporating our emotions in terms of our relationship with God, that we're not in the dynamic relationship that we need to be in. And again, that only happens if you harness this power of love. Now, when you, when, when you do that, all of a sudden, you're, you're giving free will gifts. But now, let's revisit the seeming paradox of the Ola. But now it's going to make more sense. On the one hand, we said that the Corbin Ola is not an atonement. It's a gift, right? But unless you bring this gift, you're not fully atoned. <laughs> so in other words, in other words, until we rise to that full level of being in a relationship based on love, where we're given, we haven't fully achieved what we need to do, period, end. So that's, that, that, that is the solution. That is the solution. So, so all of us have to ask ourselves, you know, how do I get to a place where I'm actually in a love relationship with God? What will that take for me? And, and I think that, you know, I, I always want to make this as real as possible. And I think that the, the next question is, we're talking about being in this very exalted, encompassing love relationship with God. How do we get there? I think the first question we have to ask ourselves is, do we even like God? <laughs> right? Because it's sort of like, I'm talking about, you know, I... It's, how do I get to Kiev from Warsaw? I'm going to tell you all the different ways to get to Kiev from Warsaw. And then at a certain point you say to me, bro, I'm in Los Angeles. <laughs> like, I'm not in Warsaw. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not in this place where I'm even eligible to be talking about loving God. I don't even know if I like God. Okay, so, so, so you have to start and you have to be real with yourself. Because everything has to be based on actual foundations where, where you're holding, where you're at, right? And of course, that's a very big subject, you know, because a lot of us um, are so fear-driven that it's, it's, it's very hard to evolve out of that relationship. Why are you doing this? Because I always do, did this. Why are you doing this? Because I need to do this. Why, am I, why are you doing this? Because if I don't do this, I'm going to get zapped. Is it anything more than that? I don't know. I just know I got to get to my next appointment and, you know, whatever it is. I got to pay my next month's rent and that's all I know. I, I haven't got... These thoughts are like, it's too much for me right now. Can't, can't get to this place. Can't be thinking about this stuff. So, the only thing that I would say is, is that, you know, all of us are, are like born in the middle of this story. You know, I, I, once, um, I once heard a rabbi speak, and, and he was talking about how do, you, how do you just sort of like begin like to reach out to other Jews who aren't familiar with, with their tradition and things like that, and they, they, don't, they don't know anything. Like, where do you begin teaching them? What, what subject do you begin teaching them? That, that's what he, he was asking. And he said, this person said, I knew someone who would sit with an open Gomorrah. And, and someone would walk by and he would say, come over here. Rava says this, Abai says that. Which one do you agree with? <laughs> so he, he, he's talking about, he's plunging them in the middle of a Talmudic argument, like in the middle of a volume of Talmud. And that, that was his approach, right? Which is a very interesting approach. Like you'd start talk about, you know, like, parachuting in the, like the middle of a war zone like without any orientation but that's that is very dynamic we we ourselves are born in a very dynamic way and what i mean by that is you know if you're going to like someone was just telling me i'm i'm sort of like getting closer 
I, I think, you know, we'll see what God has in mind, but I think I'm on my way to the Ukraine, to Uman, you know, in, in the next few days. And again, if you want me to uh, pray for you, whatever, please just uh, go on the website, uh, TorahOnitunes.com, and just send me your name. There's a contact button there. Just send me your, your names and anything you'd like me to have in mind for you. Um, and I'll try my best. But, but this, this friend of mine was just telling me this morning that he went to, to Uman, which is where Rabbi Nachman's uh, kever is, is the gravesite where everyone sort of uh, congregates, um, maybe 20 years ago or something like that. And he said it was much less built up then. And in the Ukraine, there was much more of a mob presence, you know, because the, the Ukrainians, it's, you know, I think it's a little bit of the Wild West over there. And so he, 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 he shows up and he's in the airport and this Ukrainian woman sort of spots him. I guess he looked a little too innocent and says to him, and um, he, he made a very thick accent. Of, I'm not, I can't approximate what he did, but she says to him, do you have uh, Ukrainian health insurance? Like he, like yeah, like wh- he's coming from America for three days. He's, he has Ukrainian health insurance. You know, she knows he doesn't. So he says, "I have blue, claw, blue, blue, blue cross." <laughs> she says, "You need Ukrainian health insurance." So she says, "Step up to the window." So he says, "How much?" So he says, "Twenty dollars." She gives him. He gives her twenty dollars. She stamps his thing, and then she says, "Go to the next window." So he goes to the next window, and then she steps over to the next window. <laughs> and she says, do you have Ukrainian life insurance? <laughs> he says, no. She says, $20. <laughs> so I asked him, how, what did, how long did that go on for? He says, you know, it ended up costing him around $100. And then he says... He saw a, a chassid, who I guess was part of the Rebbe Nachman side of the trip, as opposed to the Ukrainian mob side of the trip. And the chassid told him, listen, here's what you have to do. You have to buy 10 bottles of vodka. And anyone who stops you from now on, you give them a bottle of vodka. So I said, wow, like, 10 bottles of vodka? Like That must have been very heavy to carry. And he said, yeah, and he showed me how he was like, you know, it was really hard to lug. He said over the course of the trip, by the end of the trip, he had one bottle of vodka left. Can you imagine? He had to, he was stopped so many times, he was handing out all these bottles of vodka as, as bribes, you know? So, and then he said that he had one bottle left, he, he came home with that one bottle, and that he was, got married that year, Right? So that was a, an extra blessing. And he saved that bottle for his son's bris. And he opened it up and he said it was like rocket fuel. Like he'd never <laughs> tasted anything like this before in his life. <laughs> right? So, <laughs> so anyway, you it's like. Life <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. So, you know, we we're born we're born very much in the in the middle. Imagine what it's like knowing what this world is as an adult, right? We we know how hard this world is. Imagine all of us like you you just picture that that scene of someone, you know, parachuting down in the middle of a war zone. Can you imagine? parachuting down in the middle of a war zone and you're a one-day-old baby? But that's all of us. That's all of us. We arrive in this world literally helpless. Like, can you imagine you go to a country? I'm in the middle of Russia. I don't speak Russian. How about you arrive when you're born, you don't speak anything. You don't even speak the language of the people who you're with in the room. And not only don't you speak anything, it's going to take you probably a year or two 
to learn how to say, you know, mama. That, how, and, and you haven't got any food. You certainly haven't got any money. You can't walk. How is it that, how do we survive? How do we survive? So we're all literally born into war zones, completely helpless, and like our whole lives, we're just trying to figure out what, what, what do we need? What do we need? What do we have to do? What do we have to do? Right? Just, just, to, just to survive. So for a lot of us, it's like, is there a, what do you mean there's a world? Of course there's a world. Of course there's a me. Of course there's a world. Like you don't have time to, to think about something more expansive. But then all of a sudden you get a little bit older and you go, wait a second. There doesn't have to be a world. <laughs> and there doesn't have to be a me. Why is there a world? And why is there a me? And who made this world? And who made me? And then you start to go, wait a second. You get a little bit of perspective. And you go, well, there's a God. Because otherwise, how, how did all of this vastness and order, right? People think of the world as random. And I heard Gedalia Gerfine say one time, something so good. He picked up like something that was in front of on the table, like a cup. And he said... If everything was so random, why doesn't this turn into a bat and then a mountain and then a dinosaur? Right? Like, things aren't... It's, it's nice to... You know what it is? When people say that's so random, you know what they, what they mean? Can I translate? What they mean is things... Life is surprising. That's what they mean. Or life is mysterious. That's what they mean. There's nothing random about life. Um... What, what people do is, what people do is the following. In, in, um, in psychology, we, we, we call something projecting. It's when you have, you're experiencing certain emotions and you say, the other person is experiencing these emotions. Because you take your emotions and you throw them on the other person. And then you think that's what's going on, right? Like, so for instance, I'll give you an example of that. Let's say... Um, sitting in a coffee shop by myself, okay? And then there's someone across the way who I see is looking in my direction, laughing. And so let's say I'm feeling insecure because I'm sitting in the coffee shop by myself, right? And I go, oh, that person is laughing at me because I'm all alone. First of all, how do you know they're even looking at you? Second of all, they're also sitting alone, (laughs) Third of all, they may have just thought of something funny, right? Like, but if I'm feeling insecure about myself, I project my feelings onto other people, and then I use that as a guide to understanding the world around me. In this way, we can say that life is a Rorschach test, right? You, whatever outside stimuli you see, you interpret those outside stimuli based on what you're experiencing emotionally at the time. That's why it's very, very important to think positive thoughts and to have a good self-esteem because then the world around you becomes a happier place. Right? Like, if you feel good about yourself and you see someone across the way laughing, you go... Ah, people are in a good mood. So, it's a great, you know, it is sunny outside. It's a great day. It is sunny outside. Right? So, you literally inhabit a different world if you feel better about yourself. Or if you understand on a deeper level that God is good. If you understand that God is good, then you interpret the events of your life as coming from a good place even if they're challenging, even if they're challenging. 
You know, because at the very worst you go, okay, nothing good is coming from this. It must be God that you're fixing my soul. Thank you, God, for fixing my soul. Can I, what if I was born into this world and I went through decades of life of hardship in this world and I didn't at least get my soul fixed? Thank you, God, for fixing my soul. So even the hardest, most ununderstandable of times become good then. But this is all based on our perspective. So you, you, you say to yourself, well, wait a second. There doesn't have to be a world. Then, then you start to look around and you say, well, wait a second, there's so much divine order. So, so just to finish that last point, the reason why people are always saying everything is so random is because we ourselves can't fathom the depth of God's providence. So we don't understand what God is doing. So everything is confusing to us. Everything is mysterious to us. So we say everything is random. But you understand the world itself is exquisitely ordered. Look at the the orbits of like the billions, hundreds of billions of heavenly bodies. How exact and precise they are. And they don't all just knock into each other. How could there be so many heavenly bodies and they're not all crashing into each other. So from the highest all the way down to the lowest, to the subatomic level, everything exquisitely ordered. We do not live in a random environment. But because it's mysterious to us, we project our sense of not knowing onto the world and we go, nothing makes sense. But is that true? Is, is it possible, and not only is it possible, it's, it's happening right now, that we're just inhabiting the infinity of God? And how could we understand it? How could we understand it? How could it all make sense? It can all make sense. But that's not a failing of ours. That's just God's gift to us that we should be able to have this gift of living in wonderment. Wonderment is like, why do, you, why do we feel as though we have to know? You know, when it comes to solving a medical problem, that we need to know. We do need to know that. I'm not advocating ignorance. But in those aspects of our life where we just can't know, why not just, you know, dig that? You know, because that's just a reminder to us how close God is. We're inhabiting the unknowable. That's exciting. If I can have, like, some good food along the way, (laughs) then I'm good. You know what I mean? Like, that seems to be the best of both worlds, you know? It's like have a nice sandwich, inhabit the unknowable, you know, little Shabbos, I'm good. It's a beautiful world. It's a beautiful world. So why am I telling you all this? Because I said, first we have to ask ourselves the question, do we like God? Right? I am... I brought up a point a while back that I want to repeat because I think this is another kind of strategy that we fall into in terms of addressing all these things unknowingly. Like we fall into it unknowingly. I don't think we consciously decide on this, but I don't, I haven't heard this spoken out. Okay, so I want to speak it out. Which is, I think a lot of us are like, you know, this, this is our default setting. You ready? I am boycotting God until he gives me what I want. That's my strategy. But you know what? In a negotiation, you have to have, to have, you have, to have some leverage. <laughs> that's, some, that's economics 101. If you haven't got any leverage, then you can boycott all you want. It's just sad, really. 
Like, meanwhile, God is keeping you alive, giving you all this other stuff, maybe not, maybe not what it is that you most would like. He's giving you all this other stuff, and you're boycotting God. I, I will not be in a relationship with God, a meaningful relationship with God, until he gives me what I want. A lot of people, sadly, and I think not by thinking about it. I don't think people are thinking about it, really. But they, bless you, they, 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 they arrive at that, they arrive at that conclusion. And, and it's almost the opposite of what we were talking about before, getting to that love place. Right? So, so let's start to wrap it up. There's something so beautiful these, all these uh, parshas that we're doing leading up to Rosh Hashanah, um, all we're talking about Rosh Hashanah. So I, I just want to just talk about the beginning of, of this parsha that we just read in the context of Rosh Hashanah. So it's talking about the first fruits that we bring to the base of Migdash. And it says you should put them in a basket and bring them to the Holy Temple. And... Remember, we have the gematria of the Jikover, which is that Beis Migdash, Holy Temple, is the same gematria as Rosh Hashanah. So now, if you reread the verse in light of that gematria, it says, take your first fruit, right? Put them in a basket and bring it to Rosh Hashanah. So what does that mean? What, what, what fruit are we bringing to Rosh Hashanah? So I'd like to say it's all the great things that we've done. All the, like, think about what you've done over the course of this year, things that you're proud of. And bring that to Rosh Hashanah. Bring that to your davening. Say, God, look, I, I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this. And, and, and if you can say, I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this because you know what? Because I love you. <laughs> That's a great thing. And even if you, when you did this, 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 and this, you weren't thinking that you were doing it because you love God, you can look back on it and you can go, oh, I guess it's because I love you. Because <laughs> we all love God. That, that's, that's the crazy thing. You're not, you know what my proof is that we love God? Whether you feel it or not. Because remember, Ava is love in Hebrew. That's the word in Hebrew for love. Ava. And Echad is the word for oneness. Right? Like, like, like one love. Like That's a great reggae anthem, right? But it's a very ancient Torah principle. The word love and the word one are the same. Because when there's love between us, there's oneness between us. Okay? So God puts a piece of himself inside of us. That's our neshama. That's our soul. So there is already a oneness between us and God. And one is love. <laughs> so there's, if you have a soul, that means you're already on some very deep level, one with God, which means love. So that's my proof that everyone loves God. <laughs> You just have to get in touch with the, the fact that you already love them, you know? So, so you put all these things in your basket, and then what we would say is there was something called a vidui. Vidui means, in English, confession. So the classic confession, we're going to do a lot of that, like especially come Yom Kippur time, right? And saying slichos, we're saying slichos now, which is your classic, you're kind of bent over a bit, and you're kind of pounding your chest, going over things you did. And by the way, they're all in the plural. It's very important that you understand that. Even if it wasn't relevant to you necessarily, that thing that you're sort of giving yourself a clop on the chest for, remember, all of those are in the plural. Basically, you're standing there as a member of the nation of Israel, all atoning for Israel as a whole. That's important. And of course, it applies to you too, since we're one soul. Okay? So, so, if you look at the confession that we say when we bring our, our, our basket of fruits, first fruits, 
you'll notice something very striking about the confession. It doesn't say we did anything wrong. <laughs> like the classic confession is, I, I lied, I cheated, I corrupted, you know, on and on. But if you look, when you bring your first fruits, it's like, I did this right, and I did that right, and I didn't do this wrong, and I didn't do that wrong. So they say, what kind of confession is that? So there's a beautiful thought. I'm not... I, I'd love to say it in the in the name of the person who said it. Um, I'm not sure who said it. Uh, the, the, the art school uh, brings it, which is that... Um, for some people, it's very hard for them to say anything they've done right. That a person has to confess the things they're doing right, if you will. So, so that's, that's very important. Because unless you know you're doing things right, you can have that positive outlook where you'll interpret the world that you're living in as a positive place and as God is good. Unless you yourself are confessing all that you're doing right. So it's a very important component leading up to Rosh Hashanah. So again, you're taking your first fruit, which is like the fruit, like a fruit comes off a tree. The Torah compares a person to a tree. Your fruit are your actions. Your fruit are your, your mitzvahs, right? You're taking your fruit, you're taking your actions, you're putting them in a basket. And you're coming to a very positive place for Rosh Hashanah. Um, I, uh, should we do a little bit more or should we end it? It's true, it's true. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not here next week. So I'll I just say one more thought. But this, this next thought I just was so amazed by. Okay, this is from the Zohar, and is, is an amazing thing. It's brought by Rav Tzadik Hakon, okay? And, you know, we have two chunks of what we call klalas. And I don't even like to say the English word for it, you know? Let's, let's translate it uh, as consequences. That if we do negative things, there are consequences to our actions. Uh, it's called the tochacha, okay? And, and it's so kind of like, kind of like enervating to hear it that the custom actually is that when the Baal Korah, when the person reading the Torah gets to these sections, that he actually reads them very quickly in a whisper. Okay, so that's very unusual for the Torah. So, so you know it's like, it's like very like heavy stuff, okay? So the, the culmination of the tochacha, right? Is, is, um, is, is, is the following line, and it, it sounds very dire and horrible, and um, I guess because it's part of these uh, consequences. But the Zohar gives an amazing explanation of what it really means. Okay, so listen to this. Okay, well, first we'll start with what will sound very horrible and bad, but then we'll hear how the Zohar explains it. So again, this is the culmination of the Tachachas. And this is in um, Parshas uh, Kisavo 29, chapter 29, verse 68. Hashem will return you to Egypt in ships on the way which I said to you, quote, you shall never again see it. And there you will offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as slaves and maidservants, but there will be no buyer. So, you can, first of all, what are we doing going back to Egypt if Hashem said we're not going back to Egypt? And then, what is this that have we become so low and despicable that we're offering ourselves up for sale as slaves and no one wants to buy us? And that's, that's what it says. Okay, so, it's heavy. It's heavy. And then that's the, again, the culmination of the Tachafas. So now listen to what the Zohar says. So, so the Zohar is going to quote the prophet Micha, 
in a second. But but it begins by saying, these are words, the words that we just read, these are words of promise, comfort, and consolation. It's like, what? How? They allude to the end of days as prophesied by the by the prophet Micha. As it was in the days of your leaving Egypt, I will once again show you wonders. When Hashem again will once again do miracles and wonders for the Jewish people as when they left Egypt. So that I'm, I'm just interjecting right now. So the Zohar is telling us a very interesting um, foundation, which is that in the end of days, it's going to mirror our leaving Egypt and there are going to be tremendous miracles greater than even leaving Egypt. Okay? And now I'm reading again from the Zohar. Once again, in the end of days, the nations of the world will attempt to rid the world of Jews by putting them on ships and attempt to sink them at sea. However, Hashem will turn things around and drown our enemies in the sea as he did to Egypt. So in other words, you're going to have basically a massive replaying out on a much larger scale of the splitting of the Red Sea. Okay, now I'm reading again from the Zohar. There will be a tremendous rejoicing and demonstration of Hashem's strength more than there ever was since the beginning of time. After all this, the Jewish people will think back to the times when they were sold into slavery to their enemies, but it was not so. And that's in big, bold words, but it was not so. As the verse states, there was no buyer. Ein kone. I don't know if it's referencing this. I don't know if it's referencing this or if I'm making this connection, but I heard Rabbi David Aaron say that Kabbalistically speaking, in the Zman Atikun, in the end of days, when everything becomes rectified, we'll realize we never left the Garden of Eden. That's a really profound thought. That's a very, very way out thought. So now let's just get to that, 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 that last part because it's very amazing. In English we said well, we're going to try to sell ourselves as, as slaves, but there will be no buyer. And in Hebrew, those words are um, ein kone. No ein means no. Buyer. But, but, but ein or ein is if you look in the Sifrei Kodesh, in the holy books, the, 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 deep, the deep explanations of Torah, that's a name for God. So why is, like it could be translated as nothing, right? No, nothing. How is nothing a name for God? Because what, what it means is, is that, you see, if you want to describe God and give words like great, awesome, right, mighty, you will never come up with enough names to describe God because God is infinite. You will never do him full service. So there's another approach, which is, let's go to the opposite extreme. Instead of trying to use words to describe God, what if we say he's beyond, 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 like there are no words, he's indescribable, right? There's nothing that can describe him. That's, that's, this, name, that's this name that we're talking about right now. In other words, it's going from the opposite extreme, talking about how nothing will even approach a description of God. It's a very high name for Hashem. Okay? So when it says there will be no buyer, ve'ein kona, the Zohar is saying no. Ve'ein means God. God will be your buyer. God is going to acquire us. And that's how the Tochacha ends. That's how all this chunk of consequences culminate. All the miracles that are going to happen in this like salvation that's going to be beyond what happened in Egypt, all culminating in the ultimate union between us and Hashem. So, so let's just let's just end here, and we'll we'll just wrap it up, and and I'll just say, I'm just. Just, Shem should bless all of us, right? With just the best, best year. 
and and we should realize just just how fortunate we are to be alive and and just to be able to take 10 steps back and realize how is it that there's even a world how is it that there's even a me right all of us right and then start from that place and if we start from that place and look around us we'll get to that place where we'll be able to be in that love relationship we'll get to that place where we'll realize that you know something I, i'm never alone i don't care if i'm in the middle of it well i do care if i'm in the middle of a desert but <laughs> metaphorically speaking i don't care if i'm stuck in the middle of a desert i'm not alone because the one that I love the most and the one who loves me the most is right there. And you know what I want to do right now? Whatever I can to, to enhance that relationship, to make that, that relationship a beautiful thing. And then when I'm getting to that place, when I'm motivated and I make that quantum leap to love, that actually at that moment I'm actually going to reach this place of shlemus, of, of completeness. Like, I need to make that leap in order to be complete. And that I want to function that way, that all of us want to function that way. Because when we get to that place, we're looking at each other differently. We're looking at each other with a good eye. And then all of a sudden, we are able to get to the next level that God's been waiting for us since the beginning of time. To get to that place where we're all one cohesive entity. It's not enough to just be doing the mitzvahs. We have to do the mitzvahs. But we have to then go to the next level where we're actually just all joining together and we're using our oneness to reveal the oneness of God in this world. And please God, may it be now, may it be this year, may it be in this coming year, and may we taste it all soon. So, so the question is, if, if I'm just acknowledging all the good that I'm doing all the time, isn't that going to turn me into like a, an, a, you know, an egomaniac, basically? I'll, I'll become conceited or something like this, or arrogant. And so remember, the, the, the classic form of worship is we talk about it as the two wings of the dove. So what are the two? A dove needs two wings to fly. What are the two wings of the dove? So one of them is Ava, and the other one is Yira. Or in English, love and awe. Or sometimes awe can be translated as fear. Okay, Love and awe. So you need both. So classically speaking, probably our generation has to start with love. But back in the day when we were you know, not post-Holocaust and you know, we kind of were in a more normal way, you would begin with Yira and then you would evolve into love. But the idea, and the Chernobyl Rebbe talks about this, is that wherever you start... It's an ever-going spiral going up. In other words, like the way the Baal Shem Tov, I heard in his name describing awe of God, Yira, Yira Shemayim, is you're walking into this exalted palace, and it's so beautiful. Like everything is exquisite. Like you don't want to track your muddy boots into the palace. You don't want to just sort of like, you know, just move your hands wildly and knock over some beautiful piece of porcelain and smash it on the floor. So you're like very, very careful. So you're very careful in terms of observing the mitzvahs and, and in terms of your relationship with God. But it's coming from this place of having your mind blown, right? Because everything is so awesome. And that awesomeness then produces, arouses within you this sense of love. Because you're going, wow, everything is so amazing. I love the one who made this. I love the one who made this. Okay, but here's the point. Then you go, oh, but now I want to protect this relationship. I want to be even more careful. And then that makes you love the one even more. And it goes, love, all, love, all, all, love, all, love, and on and on and on and on and on and on to higher and higher levels to our last breaths. Okay? So, so how does that relate to maybe I'll, if I'm just thinking of all the good things I'm doing, maybe I'll become arrogant. Okay, so then here's the next step, right? Most people just need the first step. Here's the next step. You say, how was I able to do that good thing to begin with? Only because you blessed me, God. I have no power. I'm nothing. I'm nothing. You privileged me that you allowed this blessing to come into the world. 
Bless you. You did that for me, God? You made me the emissary, the conduit of that blessing into the world? Thank you, God, so much. And then you become nothing again. But then from your nothingness, you then have to remember that you are something. <laughs> okay? Yes. Okay, yeah. 